The following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. A number of years ago, there was a, a strange anomaly in the weather back east. There was a terrible snowstorm that hit the New York area in the month of March. It was such a huge storm that the trash collection trucks couldn't get through until the storm stopped and the snow was plowed. But finally, after a number of days of overflowing trash cans, the sanitation trucks started rolling again working all hours of the day and the night to catch up on the backlog. In fact, it was at two in the morning that Rabbi Kalman Epstein in the Kew Garden section of Queens, New York, hears the sanitation trucks rumbling in the distance. And he realizes that he didn't put his own trash cans out, and it's overflowing. And if he misses this, it's going to be who knows how much longer, and where is he going to put all this trash? So at 2 a.m., he gets up, he runs outside, and he's schlepping the garbage pails to the street so that the garbage collector should be able to collect it. As Rabbi Epstein is schlepping his cans out, one of the men of the sanitation department comes up to him and says, excuse me, are you a rabbi? It's 2 a.m., are you a rabbi? After Rabbi Epstein confirmed that he was, the man told him that his mother just passed away a few hours before, and he hasn't even told his siblings yet. And his dilemma was that he knew that they wanted to have her cremated. Their father had a proper Jewish burial in the Jewish cemetery, and he believed that his mother wanted a similar send-off as well. But in the recent weeks when his mother was already in a coma, he overheard talk amongst the siblings about, well, you know what, let's do it a different way this time. It's easier, it's faster, it's less expensive. And so he's telling this to Rabbi Epstein. He says, my mother wasn't religious, but I can tell you that she lit the Shabbat candles every Friday night. And I feel that this is what she would want. So what do you think I should do? Rabbi Epstein recommended that the man call a Jewish funeral home. He gave him a phone number of a friend that he knew that worked in that particular Jewish funeral home. He said, you can call him now. It's okay to call him in the middle of the night. Set everything up with him already before. And in the morning, you'll call your siblings, inform them about the mom's passing, but tell them that they don't have to worry about any arrangements because everything is already under control, everything has been already taken care of, and presented with the circumstances of everything having been taken care of, they won't mind so much, and they'll go along with it. He gave the man the name, the phone number, the cell number of this particular funeral director, told him, mention my name, tell him, Rabbi Coleman Epstein told you to call in the middle of the night, I want him to take care of things, I want him to make it as least costly as possible, I want him to take care of all, all of the the preparations that are needed, everything. And sure enough, the next morning, this man whose name was Theater, yet the other fellows called him Pip, he calls the rabbi and he says, you know, you were so right. I made all the arrangements. I called your friend. He took care of everything. And then I called my siblings. They weren't upset at all. In fact, the funeral is in a few hours. And then Pip said, Rabbi Epstein, you are the only rabbi I know, even though we just met. Do you think you can come officiate and speak at the funeral? Rabbi Epstein readily agreed. Although the cemetery was on Long Island, there was about an hour and a half drive from Kew Gardens, Rabbi Epstein was glad to do the mitzvah. And this woman received a proper Jewish burial with dignity and with honor. He's driving back from the funeral. Rabbi Epstein reflected on the phenomenon of a person reaping what they sow in life. That because this woman had a feeling for Judaism, that she lit a Shabbos candle, Every Friday night, that sent a message to her son that Jewish tradition is important to me. And because of that, he couldn't accept the fact that the siblings wanted to cremate her. 
And because of that, when he saw someone that looked like a rabbi, he opened his heart. The following week, the sanitation truck comes rolling down Rabbi Epstein's street. He went out. He wanted to see his friend Pip, but he didn't see him amongst the crew. And he approached the other men and he said, where, where is Pip today? They said, Pip, Pip doesn't work for us here. Pip, he works in Long Island. He never comes here. Last week was the only time he served this particular area because we were all backed up and we needed overtime of people. So he was here, but he's never on this shift. So that one particular time, because of a snowstorm, because of overtime needed, because he was going down the street, because Rabbi Epstein forgot to take his trash cans out, there was a mission there and he knew it. He knew that he needed to be there for this fellow so that this woman, because of her love for Jewish tradition, that she would have a proper Jewish burial. During the Holocaust, a man by the name of Dov Lichtberg lost everyone he was close to and everything he had owned. And after the war, he spent time bouncing around from place to place, from city to city, until he ended up in Paris, France. It was there that he and his new wife tried to rebuild their lives. However, there was a serious problem. Rabdov, as he was known in his hometown, had no way of supporting the family. He didn't speak French. He didn't know how to present himself in a way that would entice a prospective employer to hire him. Before the war, he was this Torah scholar. Rabdov held a respectful position in the community. He was a rabbi in a very beautiful congregation. But here he is in Paris, and none of them seemed to matter. He felt out of place, out of sorts drifting from job to job with nothing to show for his efforts. Fortunately, he had a friend. His friend's name was Rabbi Gad Eisner. They called him Rabbi Gadol. And Rabbi Gadol was known, he had this, this deep empathy for Rabdov, and he wanted to help his friend find a job, a fitting job, an honorable job. He understood that, that his friend just needed a break, just to get on his feet. Rav Gadol went around asking to see if anyone had anything or knew of anything. Despite his best efforts, he came up empty-handed. Finally, someone told him about a job. But it wasn't exactly the kind of position he hoped to find for his friend. It was a job as the shul janitor. The janitor of the synagogue. Upon further investigation, Rav Gadol discovered that the job included cleaning the bathrooms, mopping the floors, wiping down the walls, getting rid of the trash. It included also some tasks normally designated for the shamish of the shul, to organize the holy books, putting the books in the proper shelves, rolling the Torah scroll to the proper place, putting the tables and chairs in order. Knowing that his friend had no other options, Rav Gadol accepted the position on his behalf. He said, yes, I have someone for you who'll take the job. And he came to Rav Dov, and with a big smile on his face, he said, I have great news for you. I found you a job. Oh, Rabdov was overjoyed. A huge burden was suddenly lifted off his shoulders. And may I ask what the job entails? It's a position in a big synagogue. Really? Wow. What's the position? You're going to be the rabbi of the synagogue. Wow. The rabbi of the synagogue. That's right. They need a rabbi. I told them all about you. They're hiring you as the rabbi of the synagogue. But you know, in this place in Paris, they don't want the type of rabbi like from where we're from. They don't want the rabbi who gives speeches and classes and answers questions. Nah, nah, nah. Him. Here they have a different type of rabbi. The president of the shul wants people to learn from the rabbi simply by observing his behavior. 
that you want that the rabbi should pray and study and people should see that and they're going to want to conduct themselves that way. It's inspiration by role model rabbi. It's a great job for you. What do you say? Rabdov could hardly contain his excitement. Well, I don't have to teach. I don't have to make speeches. Yet I'm the rabbi of the congregation just by being a role model. Wow, I just be me and I have a job and they pay me. He jumped for joy. He couldn't stop thanking Rav Gadol for the referral, for the recommendation, for getting the job. But now we have a problem. What about the fact that the president was in fact looking for a janitor? He wanted someone to clean the shul. He wanted someone to clean the bathrooms. He wanted shiny floors. He wanted a neat and functional sanctuary. Well, from the first day onwards, Rabdov, from the first day that Rabdov went on to this job, his friend Rav Gadol got up 4.30 in the morning. He went to the synagogue. He mopped the floors. He cleaned the toilets. He tidied up the sanctuary. He took out the trash. He did everything that a janitor would need to do. All this to preserve the honor and the dignity of a broken soul. This went on for months. No one was the wiser for it. Rabdov served as the rabbi while the cleaning duties were covered by Rav Gadol. To keep up the charade, Rav Gadol did everything in his power to minimize contact between Rabdov and the president who was the janitor's boss, lest the secret be revealed. One day, however, crisis struck. After the morning prayers, the president approaches Rabdov and asks to have a word with him. It happened before Rav Gadol could run interference. He didn't know what to do. It appeared that the cat was out and about to be let out of the bag here. As the president spoke to Rabdov, he detailed the various areas that he felt needed to be cleaned more thoroughly. He insisted that certain things should be done on Monday morning, not on Tuesday morning. And Rabdov is nodding his head with this blank expression. By the time Rav Gadol made his way over to his friend Rabdov, it seemed as if the damage had already been done. He braced himself for his friend being upset with him for having hooked him up for the job to be a glorified janitor. So what did he want from you, Rav Gadol asks Rabdov. Rabdov answered, Ich weiß nicht. In Yiddish that means I don't know. I don't speak French. Breathing a sigh of relief, Rav Gadol ran over to the president and he said, Rabdov didn't quite understand all of your instructions. Can you perhaps repeat it to me? And the Gabbai gave him the updated cleaning instructions to which Rav Gadol replied, I'll see that it's taken care of. How's that for kindness? How's that for sensitivity? Not only providing meaningful help and support, but preserving a man's dignity in the process. That's a tzedakah. That's a mitzvah. That's a cure for our own depression and our own sadness, when we can do so, so much for someone else. There's a fellow in Los Angeles, his name is David Stauber, he's an attorney in Los Angeles. He was raised in a religious home. But by the time he went to college in the 1960s, he had lost all interest in Judaism. Between the rebellious culture of the 60s and the general sense of skepticism, he was happy to leave it all behind. When he got married, his wife Jackie, they kept a kosher home, that was her desire, not his. After he graduated from law school, David and his wife took a trip to Europe. And while touring Greece, they were in a terrible car accident. Jackie's back was broken and she became semi-paralyzed. When she was transferred to Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, Chabad's Rabbi Shlomo Kunin urged her to write to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which she did. And she got an immediate response and a blessing. And in fact, from that point on, she kept on corresponding with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who gave her constant spiritual encouragement and guidance. 
Six months later, after finishing her rehabilitation, Jackie wanted very much to see the Rebbe in New York. And even though the doctors discouraged her from making the trip, they went. This was back in 1973. So they're waiting outside the Rebbe's office. And someone tells David that it's customary to write a note to the Rebbe, and you put down your request. And then once inside, you hand the Rebbe the note as an introduction, and the Rebbe will respond to what you, what you wrote. So David tells the fellow that's telling him about the tradition and the custom. He says, I, I, I have no requests. There is nothing that I want from the Rebbe. As far as he is concerned, I'm just here to accompany my wife. This is her thing. It's her relationship. I just came, came along for the ride. Other than that, I'm a bystander. I'm sitting in the back. There's no need for me to write anything. But the man was persistent. And he said, no, you, it's the right thing to do. He handed him a few sheets of paper. He says, here, write. So he took one sheet of paper and he wrote one line. And this is what he wrote. If God is so great, why does he insist on all these tiny details? This is what always bothered him, that God seems stuck on small, trivial matters, that it somehow upsets this infinite God if you miss one little thing, or this infinite God cares if you use a meat spoon in some cottage cheese. Anyway, they come into the Rebbe's room, and he hands the Rebbe his note. And the Rebbe greets them very warmly. And first he spoke to Jackie for a while about her situation. And then the Rebbe turned to David. And the Rebbe said, I don't understand your question. Thinking perhaps that the Rebbe didn't understand English. So he started to repeat the question in Yiddish, which he remembered from his youth. But the Rebbe stopped him in mid-sentence. The problem wasn't the language. And the Rebbe put up his hand and he said, it's not for God. It's for us. God wants us to be close to him. And this is the path he gives us to get close to him. As the Rebbe proceeded to patiently explain, it started becoming clear to David that God wants the closeness of a relationship with us. God is not looking to intimidate us, to frighten us, to control us. God wants to give us a path to him. And he says, follow this path and you'll find me and you'll find meaning and you'll find purpose. And you'll find joy in your lives. For David at that time, it was a radical idea. The Judaism that he had been exposed to seemed to be saying that God wants subservience, not love. But we have to conform our conduct in order to avoid God's wrath, to avoid God's punishment. To hear it suddenly framed so differently, that God loves us, that God wants us to be close to him. It intrigued him. And as he put it, I felt as though I had been in a dark room and the Rebbe suddenly turned on the light. Thereafter, he too began an extensive correspondence with the Rebbe, who always responded to his questions. In subsequent years, even as doctors suggested that it would be impossible for Jackie to give birth, the Rebbe blessed them and insisted otherwise. The couple would have three sons and two daughters, who have since given them many grandchildren, can I know her? Friends, this is a perspective for all of us. The mitzvahs are not there to give us a hard time. They're not there to stifle us, to restrict us, to crimp our style. They are there to elevate us. They're there to enrich us. A mitzvah is the physical embodiment of God's love for us and our love for him. The greatest reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. It doesn't mean that it's always easy. Oftentimes it's not. But then again, how many really good things in life can you identify that come without struggle and without toil? Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend. 
storiestoinspire.org.